Hello, podcast world. It is me, Skip Collins, coming to you from, well, not my closet studio in Durban, South Africa anymore. In fact, right now I'm sitting in an RV in Houston, Texas. So you will probably hear the sound of cars or kids or dogs, and I'm sorry about that, but it's the best I can seem to do right now. But more importantly, you're probably wondering where in the heck has this guy been? The last months or so have been a whirlwind, to say the least. So please give me just a few minutes to explain my absence for those of you that don't know. At the beginning of 2021, my wife Sheila and I decided that after 32 years of living in South Africa, it was time to move back to the land of our birth. We really didn't feel any pull to the USA, but we certainly did feel the pull of family. We welcomed two new granddaughters into the family last year, and along with the four older ones, we were convinced that we needed to be closer, that it was time. It was a difficult decision for us to make because we love South Africa, but the short story is that we put up our house for sale last April, and then the dominoes just started falling. The house sold quickly, and by early August, we were on a plane with a one-way ticket to the USA. The evening before we flew out, I sat on the balcony of a friend's house overlooking the Indian Ocean. The moon was bright, and it was reflecting off the waves as they broke along the shore. And as I reflected on the past 32 years, and all that we had been privileged to do, not to mention all the deep friendships we had made, I wept like a baby. We got on the plane the next day, in a bit of shock, actually, because of what was really happening. On our arrival in the States, it was filled with joy and laughter as we met our two new granddaughters for the first time and marveled at how tall the other kids had grown in almost three years since we had seen them. Then people started to ask us, so what's next? Our answer was always the same. We don't know, and that was the truth. So after a month or so of gathering with family, we started the process of trying to figure out what was next. We had underestimated how much admin it would take to get settled. New doctors, new driver's license, bank accounts, medical aid, and a host of other things that we hadn't thought of were actually all quite overwhelming. We were surprised at how much we felt like foreigners in the land of our birth. We didn't know how anything worked. So now, five months later, we're finally starting to feel a little bit settled. We have decided to live in an RV. Basically, it's a tiny house on wheels. We pull it with a one-ton truck and we take it wherever we go. We have kids and grandkids in both Houston and in Nashville, Tennessee. So the RV keeps us from being tied down in one place and gives us a chance to travel a bit. Because we pretty much sold or gave away everything we owned before we left South Africa, 
Our lives are really simple right now, which offers a sense of freedom that is wonderful. Now, that might make a really good podcast someday. In the midst of all that, the podcast has been forced on the back burner. Until now, that is. So here we go. Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. I grew up as a child of the 60s and 70s and was deeply influenced by the Jesus movement as it was labeled then. In case you're not familiar with that time frame in the Christian Evangelical Church of America, let me give you a quick snapshot for context sake. The hippie movement was alive and well over this time, all over the country, but especially in California. Long hair, bell bottoms, casual sex, drug use, rock music were all iconic symbols of that era. Phrases like power to the people or make love, not war, along with the iconic peace symbol spoke into the political climate of that day. The Vietnam War was raging and the civil rights movement was moving through the South. Singer-songwriters like Bob Dylan or Joan Baez and many others were making artistic statements into the political landscape. And just as a little side note for my South African friends, Sixto Rodriguez was writing music in Detroit during this same period of time. And while very few outside of the bars of Detroit knew anything about his music, he had a massive influence on the political scene in South Africa in the 70s and 80s. If you haven't ever watched the documentary about all of that, do yourself a favor and watch it. It's called Sugar Man, one of my favorite movies of all time. But I digress, so let me go back. So in that period of time um, came the Jesus movement, driven very much by the artist. These people were followers of Jesus that had long hair, wore ripped up jeans, ran around barefoot, and lived in communities that they called communes. They're pretty much ostracized from the mainline Christian church of the day, but that didn't deter them at all. They challenged the evangelical empire of the day in every way possible. The other day I was watching a documentary about that period of time. They were interviewing the influential people of the day, and of course all these people now are my age, and they have respectable jobs, short hair, clean-shaven, and very disappointedly wear shoes now. The thing that jumped out of me and triggered a spark to podcast once again, actually, was, was what I saw in them, this freedom that they found outside of the established Christian church. They were just trying to follow Jesus and be authentic to who they were, but that didn't sit well with the Christians or what they labeled the establishment. As I've been thinking about this the last few days, I realized that the Jesus movement was really the deconstruction movement of the 60s and 70s. 
Deconstruction is not a new thing. The Jesus movement was a deconstruction of what everyone believed and a reimagining of what could be if a bunch of young people simply followed Jesus. If they put aside the trappings of the religious and embraced the radical message of Jesus. Relevant Magazine defines deconstruction as the act of rethinking long-held beliefs about God and about church and Christianity. Rachel Held Evans described it as a massive inventory of faith. See, the truth is that deconstruction isn't a new thing. It's just new language for something that has gone on in the church since the very beginning. Jesus was all about deconstruction. I mean, what else would you call statements like, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say to you, if you're angry with your brother or sister, you're at risk of judgment. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look with lust in your heart, you've already done it. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Jesus is deconstructing the heck out of what the Jewish people always believed and what they had always taught. He did it over and over and over again throughout the Gospels. He said the Sabbath day was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's deconstruction. Of course, there's this woman, remember her, that was caught in adultery? The law said she should be stoned. Jesus said the one who is without sin should cast the first stone. And we all know how the religious community, the establishment of the day, responded to Jesus' deconstruction of the Jewish faith. After Jesus was gone, his followers had to reimagine what Judaism looked like, given Jesus' teachings, his death, and his resurrection. I think for years I had this idea that the New Testament church was basically a kind of a Protestant evangelical church. I thought it was something that had completely broken away from Judaism and started something completely new. And eventually that happened. But the New Testament church that we read about in Acts and in the epistles was still very Jewish. They were attempting to reimagine Judaism in light of the deconstruction of Jesus. That's why you have the debate about how Gentiles could become Jewish so they can become followers of Jesus. You see Paul constantly reimagining how forgiveness fits with the law and how grace and the law actually coexist. He desperately wanted to reform Judaism from the inside out. This new way of thinking, of reimagining all that they always believed was not well accepted in the Jewish establishment. I could make the same argument for the Reformation of the 16th century. People like Martin Luther and others deconstructed everything the church believed and stood for and then reimagined what a church could look like if it embraced grace. 
Martin Luther set out not to break away from the church, but to reform it. However, it didn't take long to realize the church wasn't going to be reformed, and it would mean they had to start something new. The irony of that period of time was that the number that there were a number of different factions that rose up trying to define what this new reimagined church would look like. And while they all preached grace, they didn't show each other grace at all. In fact, they were literally killing each other as they disagreed about what this new reimagined church should look like. The truth about the Reformation is that it's a really dark time in the history of the church filled with hatred and violence. Is it any wonder that the Protestant church is so accepting of violence in our world today? But don't get me sidetracked. I'll go down a whole nother thing. I don't want to do that. We'll do that some other day. My point is that this idea of deconstruction is not new. We just have new language for what has happened over and over throughout church history. The other day, I was speaking to someone about my deconstruction. The truth is that I think I've been deconstructing and reimagining my entire Christian life, going back to the Jesus movement. In June of 1972, I graduated from high school. A group of friends and I spent much of that summer camped out in a state park. I went to work during the day and then I would come back to this community. On the weekends and in the evenings, we would try to witness, quote unquote, to other people in the park. It was our own little imitation of the Jesus movement in California, but it was about reimagining what Christianity might look like in community. Maybe it's just my personality, but since those days, I have constantly been looking at what I believed and what a different way might look like. Where I land today around my theological slash doctrinal belief is the culmination of all that has gone before. Everything I have learned and unlearned, everything I have believed and later let go of, everything I have experienced, both good and bad, everything I have deconstructed and reimagined. So let me share a few thoughts around this idea of deconstruction. And let me begin by addressing the question I posed in the title, is deconstruction a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's no surprise to anybody that I think it's a good thing. But let me take it a step further. I think it's absolutely necessary. I can't imagine living my whole life believing exactly the same thing. My guess is that nobody does that. We grow and we learn and that changes us. See, deconstruction is about growth. It's about letting go of what I thought was right or what I thought was true when I learned that maybe it wasn't right or it wasn't true or maybe there are just learned that there are other ways. 
And when you see that, you can't unsee it. All you can do is reimagine what life looks like in light of what you now see. One of the objections that I've heard from time to time about deconstructing is that God is unchanging. And so they would say you can't just change who God is. The theological word we use is immutability. Even that is arguable because there are times in the Bible when God seems to change his mind, but let's don't go there now. I would say for the most part, I believe that God is unchanging, but my understanding of God does grow, morph, evolve, change. And I would say that is a good thing. Or maybe to be more accurate, let me say it this way. My experience of God is always changing, which changes my understanding of God. See, I'm not just talking about like an academic understanding of God that I deconstruct as much as an experiential understanding of God. That's why once I see it, I can't unsee it. So let me take this a bit further because I think this is where lots of deconstruction comes from. We've been given an academic understanding of God, but then our experience of God doesn't quite gel with the academic understanding of God that we've been given. So now what do I do with that? That is deconstruction. Let me give you a simple example. Somebody we love gets sick. We know all the promises of the Bible. Like if you ask anything in my name, you will receive. There's plenty of those, right? But then the person dies. Our experience of God didn't line up with the academic understanding of God. We feel like God has let us down. We've been told this and this and this, but then God didn't come through. So now, what do we do with that? We either have to ignore that experience, which, by the way, is what a lot of people do, I think, or we have to deal with it. For some people, the answer is that they just walk away from faith completely. It's incredibly sad, but I get it. But I think for most of us, there are these other experiences we've had of God, right? At the same time, or other experiences, other parts in our lifetime, things that we've seen that we cannot unsee. And so it pulls us back, not to the exact same thing, but to something different, something reimagined. That process is always good. I don't know anybody that actually goes about looking to deconstruct their faith. It's something that just kind of happens when you see or experience something that doesn't line up with what you have always believed or what you have always been taught. Deconstruction happens when you see something that you just can't unsee. But while deconstruction is a good thing and a necessary thing, it doesn't mean it's an easy thing.
Many of us have heard difficult stories of families torn apart or friendships broken. Many have felt like outcasts in their communities because they had doubts or they had questions. I've had conversations with couples from time to time, one of whom is deconstructing and the other one to a much lesser degree, which then puts a strain on the marriage. I'm really fortunate that that hasn't been my story. My family, my friends, and even my work colleagues in a church context have been really supportive even when they disagreed with, with what I was thinking or what I was reimagining. I was still loved and supported. But it's not just the people that make deconstruction difficult sometimes. It's also the feeling that the earth has been pulled out from under us. The certainty that we have lived with is no longer there. And man, sometimes that's really difficult. I know in my life as a pastor, there were times that I wondered if everything I had given my life for, everything I had sacrificed, everything my family had sacrificed, all of that, that was like in the quest for something that maybe wasn't even real. I mean, those feelings are real, and I get it. But certainly for me, there were those other experiences with God that I couldn't unsee either that just helped to continually pull me back and reimagine what this might look like. All I can say is that growth is never easy, but it's always important. Find people that will support you and encourage you in the midst of your struggle. Trust the process. And then when you are ready, reimagine what life could look like in light of your deconstruction. Thirdly, I want to encourage you to continue in your quest for truth. And maybe I could say it this way. Don't let your desire for certainty override your quest for truth. There was a day that I would say that if you're looking for truth, just read the Bible. How I wish it was that easy. If God is truly mystery, which I believe with all my heart, then it requires much more than a book. It requires a lot of wrestling. It requires a lot of questions of doubt and experiences to even begin to know God. The quest for truth in many ways foregoes certainty and we love certainty. I don't think you can embrace both mystery and certainty. You have to make a choice. Don't let your desire for certainty override your quest for truth. The last thing about deconstruction I would say is this. Always realize that your reimagining is not the final act. There will be more deconstructing and more reimagining 
It's a process that I believe should carry through your entire life. At 67 years old, I'm still letting go of things I've held on to deeply for many years and reimagining new things. Not because I'm trying to see what I can deconstruct, but because I've seen something that has forced me to be honest with myself and to realize there is something that I have to let go of. And as you get older, you will find out that the next generation will doubt, question, and deconstruct what you have already reimagined. What you have built will get torn down again. I have lots of friends who have gotten stuck in the belief structures that came out of the Jesus movement. And while it was important at that time, it doesn't mean that we don't move from that place. We have to hold on to everything we reimagine quite loosely. It was in that Jesus movement era that one of my favorite bands of the time called The Second Chapter of Acts had a song that they based on John chapter 3. It says, you don't know which way the wind blows, so how can you plan tomorrow? The wind of the Spirit of God did not stop blowing in the 1970s with the beliefs of the second chapter of Acts or Keith Green or Larry Norman. The wind of the Spirit did not stop blowing after the Great Reformation of the 16th century. And at the sake of sounding like a heretic, the wind of the Spirit did not stop blowing after the New Testament church, the beliefs of the Apostle Paul and the disciple John. The wind of the Spirit continues to blow through people like Rachel Held Evans or Rob Bell or Richard Rohr or the Common Hymnal or a host of others who are seeing everything through a different lens that is more commonly than not called the progressive movement or progressive theology. And the wind of the Spirit will blow through the progressive Christian movement to a new understanding of God sometime in the future. So understand this, what we are building is going to get torn down again. There will be those who 30 years from now will still be defending their progressive movement while others are moving on to a newer, fresher wind, a newer, fresher understanding of God and how we experience God. We are not the final act. You don't know which way the wind blows. So how can you plan tomorrow? And with that thought, I'm going to leave it, at least for now. But don't be surprised if this is something we come back to from time to time, because I do think it's important. For those of you that have hung with me during this hiatus, or whatever you call these past six months, thank you. I am deeply grateful for your presence here. If you get a chance, please let people know that we're back. Or if you've never heard of us before, let them know as well. And if you want to do a review in Apple Podcasts, man, that would be extremely helpful as we get back on our feet. I'll be back in two weeks, so you don't have to wait another six months this time. So have a great week. Shalom. Shalom.